Last week, we looked at chapter 1 of this letter, and Paul, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminded us to keep the mean thing the mean thing. The church has to hold on to the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and not get caught up in all kinds of other debates. We've got to keep our focus on Christ. And now, Paul, the aging missionary, he's up in, in the north of Greece, and he's writing to Timothy, who is working in the Asian mission field, and he is working from his base in Ephesus, but he's supporting many churches in that massive city in the surrounding area. And Paul continues to give instruction about how to be church and how to do church. Look at verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, etc. So the, the then connects us to chapter 1. Once we've got the foundation laid for what proper worship is, it is focused on Christ, it pays attention to Christ, it preaches Christ, it worships Christ, it wants to know only Christ and Him crucified. That's been established. Well, let's keep going now in chapter 2. And first of all, then, Paul wants to give instruction for what happens when the church gathers around and under the gospel of Christ. If you look at chapter 3, the next chapter, look at verse 15 and 14. He says, I, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things to you. Why? Look at verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul's giving instruction to Timothy to pass on to the different churches he's serving as a missionary how to worship. So this is very much in the context of the gathered people of God. And it's rather striking what Paul puts front and center. He says, first of all, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. He piles word upon word upon word to talk about prayer. As God's people come into his presence in worship, the first thing on our mind is that we pray. We come with a disposition of prayer. We come in an attitude of prayer, of supplication. So Paul's speaking about the liturgy. He's speaking about how we come into worship and what we prioritize in worship. We pour out our hearts before a holy God and we say, God, we're sinners. Look at what we've done in the past week. If we had to come to you through our own merits, we wouldn't come close. We would be consumed by your holiness. And so we need Christ, Lord. We need his blood. We need the forgiveness that only is in him. And so we come to you in Christ and we ask you, do not look upon us as we are in ourselves by nature, by our fallen nature. Look upon us in Christ our Lord. So we come with supplication. We come with prayer, and prayer is the more general word. We come lifting up and exalting and magnifying God for who he is and what he has done. And we come with intercession. When we come into worship, we're not just thinking about ourselves, what we want, what we need. We care about others. 
we come before the Lord and we pray for each other and for the world, for the community around us. Because we didn't, we read that just a few moments ago in Jeremiah chapter 29. The welfare of the city in which we're exiled is our welfare. When it goes well with the community in which we live, it goes well with us. And we care about the world in which we live. And we intercede for our neighbors and for those who are in authority over us. And we bring thanksgivings. You know, we're, we're really good at bringing our petitions to the Lord, and when we're in trouble, we're really good at saying, Lord, I need this, and I need that, and please take this away, and please fix this. We're really quick to do that. We're not so quick to, to remember to give thanks. You remember when the Lord Jesus healed a number of people, they all ran away rejoicing, but only one came back to give thanks. And sometimes we're the people that run away and aren't thinking about thanksgiving. The apostle says, come with a disposition of prayer, of humble supplication, of lifting up the name of God, of bringing the needs of each other and our neighbors and our community, our city, our country, our world before the Lord, and come with a heart overflowing with thanksgiving. That's how we come to worship. And so this morning, the Holy Spirit confronts us with that, with this question, is that who we are? Is that how we come to worship? Is that how you're coming to worship this morning? What's on your heart? What's the attitude of your heart? Are we a praying people? Or is there room for growth? Is there room to improve the way we pray in the liturgy, in the worship services? You know, prayer often, for those who have long experience in the Christian life, prayer often is an opening and shutting kind of thing. Lord, please bless this food. Lord, thank you for this food. Lord, please bless this day. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, please bless this meeting. Thank you for this meeting. And that's so anemic. It's so weak. It's so shallow. And it can become a custom, a formality, which is basically saying, we're opening the meeting in a Christian manner. We're closing the meeting in a Christian manner. That's not the way Scripture talks about prayer. Prayer, according to the Scripture, is the pouring out of our heart and our love to God who pours His love into our hearts. It is sweet communion with the lover of our soul. And that's why Paul piles up the words about prayer, because he wants the church to be a praying people. And we need to reflect on how we can grow in that and how we can ask the Lord to make us grow in that. Is prayer called formality in your life? Or is it something in which you do pour out your heart before the Lord? which you do deliberately set aside time for. I wonder what it would take to see more brothers and sisters at the weekly prayer meeting. I wonder why there are so few. I wonder why. It's something to think about. And if you look at the way that the, the apostles teaching us to pray, 
it's not just all about us and what we need and what we want God to fix in our lives, but he wants us to be outward-looking as a church. He wants us to think about the community and the world. For all people, we're going to pray, we're going to intercede, we're going to supplicate, we're going to give thanks. Even for the greatest and most high people that we never come to meet in our daily lives because they're on another level, the kings and all who are in high positions. Now that word kings has the idea of what we'd what we would say in English as as sovereign, people who are in control. And right now, when Paul's writing this, he's just been released from his first imprisonment in Rome, and he's living under the emperor Nero, who in a few years is going to kill him. And Nero was a wicked, wicked emperor who tortured God's people, and that's coming in a few years. But you can probably already tell that things were leading up to that. And yet, the apostle says, we pray. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. And the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ says, pray for those who are in authority over you. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they do. Pray for them. The scripture does not teach us a spirit of revolution and anger and lashing out against authorities when they don't do the things we want them to do. But the scripture teaches us gentle and submissive spirit. Christians should be the best subjects, the easiest people to govern. Doesn't mean to say that we just roll over and accept injustice. No. When there's something wrong, when the authorities don't carry out their office faithfully, in a godly, in a Christ-like, in a gentle, in a firm way, in a righteous way, We make use of the legal and legitimate means to call authorities to account. That's okay. But we do that prayerfully and humbly. And we want the authorities to succeed. We want them to succeed. Doesn't matter what their political party is. Doesn't matter if we agree with them or not. We want them to to succeed. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The church, God's children, desire order, law and order and peace. Why? Not so that we can go off and buy more toys and go on more world trips and just indulge ourselves. If the Lord grants blessings like that, wonderful, but that's not the point. The Christian desires order so that we can live a quiet and godly and peaceful life. The word godly points to a life which is lived for the Lord. The word dignified in verse 2 points to a life which is a blessing to those around us. The word dignified has the idea of a life of deep respect, of honesty, integrity. It's connected to what Paul says in chapter 3 verse 7 that The office bearers must be well thought of by outsiders. We would like, as Christians, we would like society to be calm, to be ordered, to be things to be in order so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, glorifying God and being an example to our neighbors of integrity and faithfulness in our offices as fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and employers and employees. 
Why? Well, remember what we read in Jeremiah 29. The welfare of the city in which we live is our welfare. And it is good for the gospel. When we're able to raise our children and marry and marry off our children and, 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 and we're able to have children and grandchildren, we're able to, to, to preach the gospel, study the gospel, share the gospel, live the gospel. The luxury, the wealth, the peace, the prosperity, the order that we have right now in Canada is not for us to indulge ourselves. It is so that we can pour ourselves in to living the gospel and working for the advance of God's kingdom. And when times of persecution come, they come under God's sovereignty and they are a fiery trial and the church is, is purified through that. Often those who are weaker and who are still needing more time to grow in their faith, often they're swept away in those persecutions and suffer greatly. Sometimes they're restored later, but it brings a lot of agony and grief as well. And so we seek peace and order for the sake of the advance of the gospel. That's why verse 3, this is good, not because it's pleasing to us, but it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Because when there is peace and order, then the gospel can go out more easily. And God desires, verse 4, to, that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, if you know your theology well, you may raise an eyebrow when the apostle says that God desires all people to be saved. You think, but doesn't the Lord Jesus say, I lay down my life for my sheep? Doesn't the Apostle Paul write to the Ephesians in chapter 1 that before the foundation of the world, God already predestined, he chose from eternity upon whom he would set his love? Don't we believe in unconditional election? Isn't that what the Scriptures teach? Yes, the Scriptures teach that. And at the same time, the Scripture says what our verse says right here. God is the Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. How are we to understand that? Well, one way, Calvin, for instance, understanding this verse, he says, well, we've just been told to pray for everybody. We're told to pray for everybody, including the high and the low, every type of person. And so God desires that all people in verse 4 is just like the, the all people in verse 1. It's every type of person. Just in general, we need to be seeking that all people be saved. We need to preach the gospel indiscriminately to all. And that's true. The Bible does teach that. There's another way we can look at it, which is also legitimate. If you turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. An important verse which my catechism students will recognize because I cite it often. Deuteronomy 29, 29, that's page 171, your ESV Bible. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God's secret counsel is his counsel. We have no way of knowing whom God has predestined from all eternity. It's none of our business. We're called to go by what he has revealed. What he has revealed to us is not that we have to go around looking behind people's ears to see if they have a special mark and say, oh, you're one of the elect, I can preach the gospel to you. No, God has told us to go into the world 
and preach the gospel to all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that the Lord Jesus has commanded. That's the job of the church. And we leave with God who's going to be converted, who's not going to be converted, who he's going to give the gift of faith to, who is not going to give the gift of faith to. We leave that to God. We do what he calls us to do. And God's revealed will, which we can see to every sinner, is that God does not delight in the death of the sinner, but that he turn, that he repent, and that he be saved. And we can say that to every sinner that we meet. We can say, repent and believe. That is God's command to you. That is God's will for your life. If you're listening this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you, repent from your sins, turn to the Lord Jesus, believe on him, and be saved. That's the gospel. And so we come to the verses 5 through to 7, and Paul says, listen, this is why we're praying for the world. This is why we're praying for everybody. Because God wants sinners to be converted. God doesn't want to see the world roiling and writhing in the agony of its sin and its consequences. God has mercy on a broken, a groaning world and a broken and groaning humanity. God holds out salvation. God says, look to me, all the ends of the earth. And be saved, for I am God, and there is no other. That's what Paul's saying here. There's just one God. Here you are in Ephesus, in the area of Asia, and there are temples to every kind of God. There's the goddess Artemis. There's the cult of the emperor who's treated as a god in Ephesus. There's the goddess Nike, the goddess of victory. There's all kinds of gods and goddesses to be worshipped in Ephesus and the surrounding area. And the church comes and says, no, there's only one God. There's only one to be worshipped. There's only one way to live. And there's only one way to be in fellowship with a holy God, sinner. And that's to come to him in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between God and man. No other God to worship. No other way to get to him. Then in Christ and through Christ. Look at verse 6. He gave himself as a ransom. He made the payment. He washed away the sin. He dealt with the problems. And that was a message that was preached to God's people in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law so that he could redeem those who were under the law God sent Jesus. This is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the testimony which now at this time can finally go into all the world. It's not restricted to the Jews anymore. Every sinner needs to hear this. There's nothing more important. We can serve our community by, by feeding the hungry, which we ought to do. We can minister to those who are lonely and afflicted, and we ought to do that. But Buddhists can do the same thing. And atheists can do the same thing. And so we need to do those things. We need to minister and serve to the hurting, to the broken, to those who are in need. But the main thing is that we need to bring Christ. We need to point sinners to Christ. And Paul says, that's my job. 
That's why I was in prison for two years in Rome. That's why in a few years' time, I'm going to be imprisoned again. I'm going to be killed. This is my job. Even if it kills me, I will preach Christ. I will preach the truth. I will preach the gospel. I will call people to faith in Christ. You see how outward-looking the apostle is. Now, I've worked on the mission field for many years, and I notice, and other missionaries have told me the same thing, that once you get a little church planted and a little community starts to form, very, very quickly, you get an ingrown church. You get a church which is so concerned about how we worship and what we do and what we're doing and how to do things, and we forget about the world. We forget about our neighbors. We forget about the people that are outside of Christ and need him. We just get so caught up in all the intricacies of what we believe and how to believe and what we do and how to do it and how to live a godly life and how to get along with each other. We forget to look outwards. And Paul reminds us this morning that Being a faithful church does not mean keeping the traditions and the customs of what, for all intents and purposes, is an Anabaptistic colony. And sometimes we're in danger, brothers and sisters, of living like that. We may not physically be in a colony way out in the boonies with our farms and our little houses all together. We're spread out amongst the city in which we live, but sometimes we can live even amongst our neighbors, as a kind of virtual colony. That's not what the gospel calls us to be or to do. That's not being church of God at all. And so we come to verse 8, and Paul again is speaking to Timothy. He's a a mission worker. He's a missionary, so he's going to be uh, encouraging different churches, different pastors, different elders, and different uh, congregations around the area. And so Paul's passing instructions to him how things should be in all of these churches. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. The men should pray. The Bible teaches in here and in other parts of the Scripture that in worship it is men who must have leadership. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. It is the men who should pray. How? Lifting holy hands. You remember Psalm 15? Those who did the Conquer series remember it because we sang it every week. Psalm 15 speaks about who can come into the presence of a holy God. Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? A person who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. You need to have a blameless heart and clean hands to come into the presence of a holy God. What kind of hands do you think you would accept serving you? You go into a restaurant, you're about to eat, and you see the chef coming back from the toilets, and he's just unplugged the toilet with his bare hand. And then he goes into the kitchen and arranges your food and brings your plate and taps you on the shoulder. It says, bon appetit. You're not going to eat that. 
You don't want to be served with somebody with filthy hands. In the Old Testament, the priest would come into God's presence to worship him, to serve him. He had to come through the water. He had to come through the, the, the lever, the brass lever. The, he had to wash and purify himself. Then he had to come past and through the sacrifice, the blood poured out to signify, to signify the, the washing away of sins. And only then could he come into the, the holy place with the, the incense, which signified the prayer of God's people. That's how it worked in the tabernacle. And that's a picture of, of covenant worship still today. We need to come into God's presence washed, clean, pure, and forgiven. And how are you coming into God's presence? What kind of hands are you bringing into worship? Hands perhaps that all week long have been grasping after money and greed. Hands that have been grasping after lust with click after click after click as you feed your pornography addiction. Hands which have been rolling or arranging your drug of choice or, or grabbing the bottle which you are treating as your only comfort in life and death. Those hands cannot be brought into worship. Those are not holy hands. And so what do we need, brothers and sisters? We need what the Old Testament ceremonial system was pointing to. We need the washing. And you come here as a baptized child of God. And you know that all the filth of your sin, as great as it is, as shameful as it is, is washed away because of Christ. And you come in the power of the, the completed sacrifice, once for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, his blood poured out to wash away your sin. And it is with the hands that are cleansed, the hands made holy, by the work in the person of Christ that we come into the Holy of Holies with the incense of prayer and we worship our God. We lift up holy hands. How? Without anger or quarreling. Open your Bible to Psalm 133 for a moment. Psalm 133 speaks about the unity of God's people, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the color of his robes, fragrant, pleasing to the Lord, beautiful. You know what would happen to Aaron if he came into the temple without that oil, without a, that anointing oil which set him aside to the office, the privilege of coming into the Holy of Holies without being killed? Without that oil, without that unction, without that anointing, he would be struck down. He would die. He would not be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Brothers, when we come to worship this morning and we're angry with each other and our hearts have anger because of the pandemic and because of responses to the pandemic and we're bitter and we're harboring things in our heart against one another, then we are coming before God without the anointing oil of the unity and the love of the communion of saints. And our worship will not be acceptable. It will not be received. And so the apostle says, you lift up holy hands without anger and without quarreling. You take those works of the flesh and you nail them to the cross. 
and you plead with the Holy Spirit, Lord, Spirit of the Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living God, take away the works of the flesh, take away my anger and my bitterness and the quarreling that I've been doing all week long perhaps with conversations and emails and letters and, and comments on social media and Lord, work in me a new spirit, a spirit of love and joy and peace and every fruit of the Spirit. So the apostle calls us to come into God's presence in Christ. Then we come to verse 9. The women also should adorn themselves. And here, the word adorn, the ladies might be interested to know, is connected to the word cosmetic. I'm sure our sisters understand that word very well. Cosmetic is actually just uh, two words smushed together in Greek. It's cosmos, as in the cosmos, the created order, and techne, which is an art or an ability, a craft. And so it is the ability to order things, to put things in their place and in the right proportions. That is true beauty, when things are right. They're in the right place, they're performing the right function, and they're in the right proportions. And so the verb here is connected to our word cosmetic. It's connected to our word cosmos. And what the apostle is saying is that the women should cosmos themselves or adorn themselves in, how do I put this in English? Cosmosy clothing. Uh, clothing which is adorning. Clothing which is appropriate. Clothing which is well-ordered and in good proportions. Properly organized. Ordered. See, sin brings disorder. Sin brings brokenness. We see it in our culture. Our culture delights in ugliness. With all the things we do to our bodies and, and we scar them and we pierce them, we put things into shock and to horrify and we put markings on our body to... to to, to shock and horrify. And that's the very essence of the kingdom of darkness. When the Christian puts markings on or in their body, it is done for beauty and for order and for everything being in good proportion. It's done for worship. And so the, the apostles telling the sisters that they need to arrange themselves, organize themselves, order themselves in orderly apparel. If you look at Matthew 12, 44 for a minute, you'll see how the same word in Greek is used in a surprisingly different way, Matthew 12, 44. And you know the story, Matthew 12, 44, that's page 818 in your ESV. The return of the unclean spirit, the, the spirit goes out, goes around, comes back to the house, which is empty, swept, and put in order. That's the same verb here. Same verb in our text, which says that women should adorn themselves. That's the same verb in Greek here in, our, in, in Matthew 12, 44. The house is put in order. The house is adorned. The house is ordered, organized. Things are in the right place. Things are beautiful because they are in the right place. And we know that, right? Mothers, if you come into the, the living room and the kids have just cleaned it up nicely, everything's all neat. Makes you feel good. And fathers, we think the same thing. But when you come into the living room after a hard day, 
and there's just mess everywhere, that's disorder, and that doesn't feel good. It's not beautiful. It's painful. And so the whole idea behind this word is order. Now, why is the apostle telling the women how to dress? What's going on here? Well, in the, the first century, the, the Roman Empire was becoming increasingly wicked and depraved, and that was starting at the top. I can't mention off the pulpit the things that were done by the emperors in their courts. It was incredible depravity. And so the women, and we, we see that a little bit nowadays in age with the, the, the entertainers and the, and the billionaire uh, famous people and celebrities and, and the way that sometimes they live. And then the, the regular people read the magazines and try to imitate the, the styles and try to imitate the attitudes and the look of the very famous people that often live like pigs. That was happening in the first century as well. People were imitating the empress and the ladies of the court. And one of the things they were doing is they were dressing in immodest clothing, see-through clothing sometimes, and they were piling up their hair, and the apostle even mentions that, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire. Why would he have a problem with braiding your hair? Maybe some of us right now have braids in their hair. Is that a sin? No, it's not. This is the context here, is that in the first century, if you would grab a medical textbook, it would teach you that hair had a sexual function. And that's why I can't get into all the details now in the sermon, but when women were married, they would immediately walk around with their heads covered because the hair was seen as hollow and it was seen as having a role in drawing up the reproductive juices. And so a woman with a lot of long hair would be more fertile, would be able to bear more children. But it was, it, was, it was as good as going naked for her, a married woman, to walk around with no head covering. So it was a very different situation. We obviously have different medical textbooks, and this doesn't really apply to our time. But at the time, that was the understanding. And so women who were piling up their hair, and they would use wire frames, and they would pile it up very, very high and not cover it or just kind of cover it, but it was seen as a very sexually suggestive thing, and it was. It was kind of like today the apostle would say, don't go and dress like the Kardashians or, or the other people that you read about in the celebrity magazines. Don't try to imitate their style because their style is often suggestive and sexualized, and that's not proper for the daughters of God. And so, in Ephesus, rich city, it was the New York of, the, of, of that area, of that time, and some of the ladies coming to Christ would have been richer ladies and who were kind of caught up in this whole world. And the apostle saying, if you're in Christ now, you need to think differently about the way you dress and the way you act. And then he says in verse 10, but with what is proper, for women who profess godliness. And this is the fun thing in the Greek because the word proper here in Greek means with what is, one translation can be with what is towered up, with what is conspicuous, with what is eminent for godly women, 
good works. So he's making a play on words here. The, the worldly women are piling up their hair, sexually suggestiveness. But the godly woman piles up good works. That's what's proper for the daughters of God. And then he continues in verse 10 or verse, uh, verse 11 and 12. We, we saw back in verse 8 that the men should be praying. And now we look at verse 12 and we are reminded that the men should be teaching and preaching, not the woman. The woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness. What does that mean? Is, is the apostle saying that God's daughters must always be carpets upon, just lay down on the floor, please just stomp on me with your feet, you know, just walk all over me, I will submit to whatever you say, and I'm just nothing. Is that what the Bible says? No, not at all. The word submissiveness here is connected at its root with a military term of falling into formation. Now, when a soldier falls into formation, fall in, is the commanding officer's command. When the, the, the soldiers fall in, each according to their rank, they're not saying, I am a lesser human being than my captain. They're just saying, he's the captain, I'm the soldier, I'm falling in, I'm just doing my job. And that's the idea behind this word submissiveness. Embracing our place, embracing who we are, embracing our role and our office. And then the apostle explains that in the verses 13, 14, and 15. He says, look, we're gathered for worship here. So what's happening when we're gathered for worship? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going beyond the veil. We're going beyond the curtain. We're going to the very holy of holies. We're coming past the cherubim. And the cherubim aren't stopping us like they did with Adam and Eve in the garden. The cherubim aren't saying, stay away from a holy God, you sinner. The cherubim are saying, welcome home, son of God, daughter of God. You belong here. And in worship, as we're gathered, we, we walk right into the throne room of heaven in the spirit and in Christ. That's where we are right now. And the temple was a picture of that. The temple, you had to go through the water, through the, the sacrifice, the blood. You had to come with the incense of the prayers. You had to go past the, the veil, but only one person could per year, and you could come into the presence of God. On that veil or that curtain were embroidered cherubim. They're the guardians of God's holiness. They were saying sinners can't come into the presence of a holy God. That was a picture of the garden. The temple, and we've talked about this before in other sermons, that was a picture of the garden. A holy God, there are fruits and trees, and there were cherubim, and the sinners were on the outside. They couldn't come in or they would die. And so in worship, we are coming back, not to the first garden, but we're coming to what the garden represented in paradise. We're coming into the very holy of holies of the universe. We're coming into God's presence. And what Paul is saying is this. We messed up in the first garden. That first picture of the holy of holies of the universe, we messed up, we sinned. How did we sin? The problem was with we not, us not keeping our offices and our roles. We didn't do our jobs. Do you remember what happened? Look at Genesis 3.17, if you can flip to it very quickly. Genesis 3.17. What does God tell Adam when he 
when he speaks words of judgment. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3 of Genesis, page number 3 in your Bible. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. The reason that things break down, the reason why your plants die and the weeds grow, the reason why you suffer sickness and pain and lose loved ones, and, and in the end we die, is because a man was not a man, and a woman was not a woman. Adam didn't do his job. He was supposed to be a spiritual leader. He was supposed to be the one that would take the initiative when it came to God's revealed word and to defend it and to teach it to his wife and to his family and to the human race. But he abdicated his responsibility. He sat there just staring while his wife took the leadership. His wife took his role and started interpreting the word of God. And we all know what happened. So what's the apostle saying? He's saying that went very, very wrong the first time. Don't do it again. Men have to be men. Women have to be women. And when we all take our roles, which God has given us, then there is life, not death. Then there is healing and restoration, not brokenness. Then things are ordered beautifully. Everything works. If I was to say to you, today we're putting the women in their place, how would you react? How does that feel to, to hear that? Doesn't it sound kind of nasty, putting women down? We're going to put the women in their place. But how about if you broke your bone and it's sticking through the skin? And the doctor says to you, I'm going to put that bone back in its place. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? How about you're driving along the road and some important part of your engine goes out of its place and smashes through the hood of your car. And your car stops. And then you go to the mechanic, he says, we're going to put that part back in its place. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? To be in the right place is a good thing. And the reason it sounds so ugly to say we're going to put a person in their place is because it means that that person doesn't like their place and they want to be doing something different. They don't accept who they are. And so they have to be put in their place. And that's the ugly part because they should themselves embrace whom God has made them to be and what God has given them to do. And that's what the apostle tells the women in the last verse of our chapter. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what does that mean? A lot of theologians have spilled a lot of ink over this one. What does it mean she will be saved through childbearing? Some people say, well, the Lord Jesus will be born from a woman, so he will be the Savior. But here's the problem. Paul's using the future tense here. He's not saying she has been saved because Jesus was already born. He says she will be saved. What does it mean? Well, we know that the apostle's not saying if you have lots of children, you have a better chance of getting to heaven. You're going to be saved by having children. That doesn't work because the Bible teaches us that we're saved by Christ. And if you're a single woman, if you're a woman with no children, you are saved in Christ. If you're a mother of 12 children, you're saved in Christ. It's not how many children you have that makes you a more godly woman. What is the apostle saying? The apostle's saying this, be who you are embrace who you are, embrace whom God has made you to be, embrace your role, embrace your office. 
Be who you were made to be. God gave to man and woman, to the human race, he gave them a command, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And Adam couldn't do that by himself. And the woman couldn't do that by herself. And so God made this incredible partnership, man and woman together. What a glorious thing it is. It's like a, a head and a body. They can't live without each other. They need each other. They're both vitally important to one another. And they, together, they live. That's what being a man and a woman is. And so man needs woman and woman needs man. Each contributes their gifts. And there are certain things that the woman can do which man can't. The woman is built to be a fount of life. Her whole body her whole monthly cycle, it all points to the fact that she is a life giver. She is a fount of new life. Sister, your body proclaims it loud and clear. One of the greatest gifts that you have to offer to God and to the human race is that you are a life giver and a life nurturer. And the world around us says, repress it. Take the drugs to repress it. If they don't work, kill the baby that was born. Do the abortion. Leave your husband. Leave your family. Leave the nurturing. Leave the life-giving. Be basically a man with a uterus. And if you can get rid of the uterus, do that too. Because then you'll be really free. That's what the world says. And the scripture says and the gospel says, no. Embrace who you are. Embrace who God is made you to be. So in the first century, things weren't much different amongst the elite from the, the times in which we live. All the things I just mentioned about the attitude towards children and sexuality and women's roles were very common in those days as well, especially amongst the elite. Now, you may be listening to me and saying, well, I'm single or I'm married with no children. What is this saying to me? Am I not good enough? Am I not really fully worshiping God as a woman because I don't have children and I'm not married? And sister, if you're, if you're single, if you're a married woman with no children, you need to know that this is from the hand of God. This is his right now. It might change in the future, but right now this is his will for your life. It comes from his hand. It comes from your father. He's guiding your life, and at this point, this is what he's given to you. But it doesn't change the fact that you're a woman. You are a life giver. You are a life nurturer. That's who you are. And if the Lord has not given you your own children right now, then you need to pray and say, Lord, show me the way. Show me how, in my circumstances, I can faithfully carry out my role as a giver of life, as a nurturer of life. And that could be a million and one things. That could be adopting children. That could be teaching children. That could be becoming a scientist and, and working on a, a cure for, for some kind of cancer, which will be a blessing to many women. There's all kinds of ways to nurture and to heal and to promote life and to bring about life. God will show you the way, but know this. This is who you are. You are a life giver and a life nurturer, and your life should revolve around that office in Christ. So here we are. 
we've got chapter two, the, the apostles telling us once we've got the gospel down pat, we've got that as a foundation, this is how we ought to worship. And we ought to worship with humble submission to the word. We need to embrace our role and our, our office and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to worship God as a church which is a microcosm of the new world and the new humanity. Things are in place. The broken things are restored to their function in place. So when people come into the community of the saints, they ought to get a little taste of what things are going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. The apostle calls us to be ordered in our liturgy, begin with the right things, the important things, begin with prayer. The apostle calls us to be ordered in our priorities, not to be worshiping and living just for ourselves, but worshiping with a heart for the world. We worship with a longing that all knees will bow and all tongues confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the focus of our worship. And then we, we worship with order in our offices and our roles. If God is to be worshiped, if the world is to be one for Christ, we must embrace who God has made us to be. We must embrace our office and our calling. As men, who we are, as women, who we are, sons and daughters of the living God, together, using our special gifts and our special duties to together worship God and call the world to him. So, this is worship, brother and sister. We're going to sing about that now in the psalm, Psalm 99. He is exalted above every nation. And so we worship him uprightly. We spread his fame and we call all the peoples to bow the knee and to, to confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. And we come to worship God. We come to a place of forgiveness and we call people to a place of forgiveness. We come to a place of restoration and reconciliation. We call people to, to that place where everything and everyone is restored to its proper order, its proper role, its proper place, its proper function. All the broken things are fixed. All the things that are out of place are put back where they belong. And then the creation, the cosmos, begins to do its job. It stops groaning, and it starts worshiping. Amen.